This evening's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 10, reading till chapter 6, verse 2, and it's on page 1160. Sorry, 1161. Two Corinthians chapter five and starting at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Let me pray for us as we start together. Lord God, we thank you for your love. The love that we've just been singing about. We thank you for your word that you speak to us this evening. Help us to understand your love. Help us to listen to your word. Amen. What do you find hardest about being a Christian? There might be all kinds of things, but I'm looking to go deeper than simply having to put up with over-diluted squash and not being able to have a lion on Sunday mornings. What's the hardest, the hardest thing for you living as a Christian? Well, this is a question I asked a number of our young people 
some from our 20s Connect group and also a few of the older members of the congregation at coffee shop. And I had a whole range of responses. What do you find hardest about living as a Christian? Well, not to live for things other than God. The expectation in church to always be okay. The knowledge that many of my friends and family members aren't Christians and probably won't be saved. Not giving in to peer pressure. Trying to live distinctly from the people around me. To simply keep going. Keep going as a Christian. Those are the struggles that many of you will be facing this evening. And they are struggles that the Christians in the Corinthian church were facing too. The same pressures, the same temptations, the same fears. And this evening we can recognise that we are also united in our struggle to share our faith. That was the one thing that came up a number of times when I asked that question to those various groups. Just how hard and difficult we find it to share our faith, to witness to others, to tell them about Jesus, to evangelise. Back in the opening of this letter that we're going through in the evening services, in chapters 1 and 2, we, we saw the Apostle Paul defending himself. And this was so that Christians could trust the gospel that he taught, shared and lived. We saw in the opening chapter of the letter the reasons for trusting the gospel. And we see here in our passage tonight, in chapters 5 and 6, the reasons for sharing the gospel. And in reality, there's a lot of crossover between the two, between reasons for trusting and reasons for sharing the gospel. And that's not actually all that surprising, is it? If we believe that something is worthy of our trust... Well, then, more often than not, we're going to be willing to tell others about it. There's a bit of a a running joke here uh, on the staff team of the church between what make of Hoover is the best to go for. I won't divulge on whose allegiances lie where, but there are some very passionate and heated discussions over which brand works best. I'm sure you have your opinion as well. And it's clear from those borderline tedious conversations that if you trust a product, then you're very much willing to convince others to trust it as well. And there are loads of much more serious and interesting examples, aren't there, from trusting our sports teams to trusting a political party. Where there is trust, we also see a desire to bring others into that trust as well. But of course, this then poses a question for us here this evening. If, as Christians, we are trusting in Jesus, trusting in the good news of the gospel, are we willing to share it? Are we willing to persuade others to trust as we trust? We've recognised some of those things that Christians find the hardest, and that's what we're going to be thinking about this evening. We're thinking about, is a gospel that's worth trusting also worth sharing? And we're going to be thinking about that uh, question across two main points. 
In the first half of our passage, we'll see the motivation for mission. And in the second half, we'll be thinking about our new identity that enables evangelism. Our first motivation for mission is that as Christians, we have a Lord worth fearing. In verse 10, we're told that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All must give an account of what they have done, the good and the bad. The thought of that might fill us with dread. But what we need to be clear on is that Paul doesn't fear condemnation, but evaluation. This is not the fear of being afraid of some angry, abusive deity, but rather recognising the serious responsibility that our Heavenly Father has given us. It is not the loss of salvation which cannot be lost, but the loss of commendation which is at stake. This is completely in line with the Lord's teaching on the accountability of a steward to his master with respect to the faithful use of gifts entrusted to him that we hear of from Jesus' teaching in Luke 12. God's gift to Paul was to be an apostle. The gospel was entrusted to him. And Paul knew that one day he would have to stand before the Lord and give an account of his faithfulness as a missionary. And how about us? Are we not saved by the same gospel that saved Paul? Are we not entrusted with the same good news? Not in an apostolic way in which Paul was, no. But nonetheless, we have been given life. And with it, great responsibility. Are we not, like Paul, also destined to stand before Jesus on that day when he will sit on the throne, judge over all things, And we will have to give an account for the ways in which we have used the great gifts that he has given us. How faithfully have we used our time? How well have we pursued those opportunities? How single-minded have we been in our Christian service? The judgment seat that we see here, that we will all one day stand before, believers included, reminds us that we have been saved and that we have been saved not for a life of aimlessness or self-centeredness, but a life of serving the Lord. In the following verse, Paul goes on to say that since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. In light of the amazing salvation that we have been given, in light of the responsibility that we now have, and the promise of that judgment that is to come, Paul is motivated to mission, motivated to persuade others of the life-saving news of the gospel. For us here today, we need to allow our understanding of God to shape the way in which we serve him. Yes, he is our loving saviour, but he is also our Lord, who will one day sit in judgment over how we have used the gifts he has given us. Let that clear understanding of who he is and what he will do, of what is to come, let that motivate us to mission. Secondly, we see that we as Christians have a message to be proud of. I don't know if you've 
ever been in a situation where something was completely not your fault, and yet you still find yourself saying sorry? Perhaps you're walking through your festival place on a Saturday, and it's busy, and someone completely bumps into you, and you're oh, sorry, sorry, even though it completely wasn't your fault. I'm pretty sure that's a, a British tendency, and it's not just me. We're often very quick to apologize, aren't we? And maybe we feel that about our faith. We're very quick to apologize for how offensive people find Christianity. We often find ourselves feeling a bit awkward, a bit embarrassed by our not particularly impressive-looking Christian faith. If that's you, then have a look at verse 12, uh, 11 and 12. Paul tells the church that they can take pride in him. But just as we saw in chapter 1, this isn't so much Paul we're boasting in or taking pride in. Rather, it's in the message that he was giving and living out as an apostle. Paul says to the ashamed Christian, you can be proud of my message, the message of the gospel. Paul says to the isolated Christian who feels so small, who feels like they can only really express their faith on Sundays, away from the workplace, away from college, away from the peer pressure. To that individual, Paul says, you can be proud of the glorious message of Jesus Christ. No religion in the world is all about what God has done for us, rather than what we have to do for God. No worldview is so completely just and fair, as well as being so completely gracious and merciful. As Christians, we have something to be proud of. Not ourselves, not our rotors, not our music, not our handling of God's word. We boast in Jesus and what he has done for us. Isn't that something that we can all take pride in? In verse 12, we see that by taking pride in Paul, by taking pride in the message of the gospel, we are able to give an answer to those who take pride in what is seen, to those who take pride in finite things, in their appearance, in their career, in their possessions, in things that ultimately will not last. It's to those people that we can show something better, something that lasts, something that isn't simply seen, but something, verse 12, that is in the heart. So the next time you begin to feel yourself holding a sense of shame for the Christian message you believe, remember Paul's words here. We have something to be truly proud of. And we have an answer, an answer to those seeking something that lasts. Our third motivation is that as Christians, we know a sacrificial love that compels us. And this is the strongest motivation. There is no power so great, no incentive or inspiration as strong as the knowledge that someone loves you. And we know that, don't we? From the way we shape our lives around our loved ones, the ones that love us most. Here in verse 14, we see that it is Christ's love that compels us. This sacrificial love that Jesus shows is a love that compelled Paul and compels us to live lives no longer for ourselves, but lives for the one who died for us. 
And that's what Paul says when he, uh, means when he says, we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. All who receive this great love and put their trust in Christ die to themselves, their dreams, their desires, ambitions and plans. They are no longer based on their own self-centeredness, but instead are based, verse 15, on him who died for them and was raised to life again. And there is no greater example of this being lived out than in the man writing this letter. Paul once saw the man who hated and sought to destroy Christians and their faith was converted on the road to Damascus and transformed as he learned of the love that Jesus had for him. From that love, he is compelled to use the rest of his life for the one who gave life to him. Paul's understanding that Jesus, in his death, loved him was now the controlling force in all he said and did. And these aren't empty words that Paul is speaking here. When he says that he is compelled by love, he really, really means it. Compelled to travel thousands of miles, compelled to suffer shipwrecks, trials, ridicule, imprisonment, beatings, compelled even to death. It was Paul's understanding of Jesus' love for him that motivated him to mission. Another example, and a more modern-day one, can be seen in the life of an American missionary. What could drive a 24-year-old man in his prime of life to leave his home, his friends, his family, and travel to a remote Ecuadorian jungle tribe? For Jim Elliott and his four companions, it was Christ's love that compelled them. Jesus' deep personal love for them that drove them to learn languages, train for years, work with the Ecuadorian Indians, and even give up their lives when they were speared to death by the tribe that they were evangelizing. 28-year-old Jim Elliot died, leaving behind his wife and one-year-old daughter. For both the Apostle Paul and for Jim Elliot, the cost of mission couldn't have been any higher. And yet it was the great love they knew that enabled them to unswervingly devote their lives to the service of Christ. Jim Elliot, writing in his journal, wrote these words. When the shiny paint of life laid on by curiosity's hand has worn off, what better thing can a man know than the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. As Christians, we know a sacrificial love that compels us. So what motivates us to mission? Well, we see here that uh, we are motivated by a right fear of God. It is the pride we can take in the Christian gospel, and it is the love that has been made known to us through the cross of Christ. This is what compels us to share the good news of Jesus with those that God has put in our lives. However, it's one thing to be motivated, but it's another thing to actually be able to do it. I remember when I was uh, probably around the age of 15 that my school football team that I played in had made it to the knockout stage of an inter-school tournament. 
And I remember very clearly our teacher and uh, football coach giving us a really inspirational pep talk before the game. And we were all really fired up. The crowd was cheering. We had done our intimidating warm-up routine. We were seriously motivated to win that game. But when it came to it, what happened? Well, of course, we were seriously and completely thrashed. We lost 4-0 and were out of the competition. We simply weren't good enough. We were outclassed. We weren't enabled to follow through on the motivational pep talk that we had had. And maybe that's how you're feeling at this point. Your yes and amening to our motivation to mission that we've seen. But then you think ahead to tomorrow. You think ahead to next week. Am I really going to speak to my colleagues? Am I really going to tell them what I've been doing this weekend on Sunday? When I see my friends at college, am I really going to ask them if they want to come to that youth event with me? Am I actually going to see if my friend wants to come to the tea bar on November the 9th? We might be motivated now, but when the match starts, we expect yet another embarrassing defeat. We may feel motivated to mission, but we don't feel enabled to evangelize. But that's about to change. As Paul shows us, our new identity that empowers us, empowers us to share the gospel. The first aspect of our new identity comes in verse 16 and 17, as Paul exp- explains that the Christian is a new creation. What does it mean to be a new creation? Does it mean that we have some kind of special superpowers? No, something seemingly less dramatic, but in reality, much more life-changing. As new creations, we have a radical reorientation. You may be familiar with the astronomer Copernicus, hailed as being the man who first formulated a model that placed the sun rather than the earth in the centre of the universe. It sounds simple enough to us, but can you imagine just how radical a change in thinking that this must have been? It was a radical reorientation that would have changed how the entire society would have seen themselves at that time. Here, Paul speaks of the Christian's radical reorientation, which he had undergone firsthand on the Damascus Road, even though Paul once saw had been outwardly a religious man, everything had revolved around him. He had been living life with himself at the centre of his universe. And it wasn't until his dramatic meeting with Jesus that he then came to realise that it was all about God's Son. And we too had ourselves set up at the centre of our universes. But when we put our trust in Jesus, we became new creations. We die to our old selves, our old self-centred selves. And Jesus instead becomes the centre of all things, the one our lives revolve around. It's this radical reorientation that changes everything in our lives. The old has gone, the new is here. So when we're worried about what people might think about us, when we speak about things that really matter, or when we look to invite them to an event, we can remember that it's not about us. 
It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He is where our identity is set. Not in how others see us or even in how they treat us. Just as radical as the sun being the center of the universe is the Christian's new identity in Christ as the center of all things. We are new creations, and as such, we are enabled to evangelize. But another part of our new identity is our new purpose. Verse 18 to 21 are wonderfully deep and rich verses that we don't have time to explore fully tonight. But it's here we see that God is very much in the business of reconciliation. Reconciliation, the means by which we are made right with God. The way in which our friendship and relationship with God is restored, reconciled. Paul says in verse 18 that all this is from God. Everything we've seen so far this evening is God's work. The message that we can be proud of, the love that compels us, the new identity, the identity that we're given, it's all from God. How? We'll read on. God reconciled us to himself. He restored, he mended our relationship with him through Christ. The cross is the bridge by which we're reunited with our heavenly father. In verse 21, we, saw this draw, we see this drawn out. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us to bear our wrongs on himself as he died on the cross, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In exchange for all our evil, we are given Jesus' perfect obedience, his perfect life. We have a God who is very much in the business of reconciliation, of bringing us back to him. But it doesn't end there. Surprisingly and amazingly, at the end of verse 18, we see that we, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. And later in verse 20, we're told that we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And of course here, Paul is referring primarily to his own role as an apostle, as one of God's special messengers, who very much acted as a representative an ambassador of Christ. But wonderfully, it doesn't end with Paul. This is now our new purpose as we take on our new identity. That as Christ's ambassadors, we point others to the reconciling God. In a world where so many struggle to find a meaning, to find a role, we as Christians have a definitive purpose in this life. Today, we know that the role of ambassadors is to represent a country in the world of politics. But Paul would have been writing this in a way which took on an older understanding of the word ambassador. In many ways, an ambassador would be the king's herald. He representing the king as the advanced guard would go and announce his imminent arrival, his impending victory. We are Christ's ambassadors. We represent Jesus as we live out our lives, but we also, in a much clearer way, are the heralds of the King. End of verse 19. He has committed to use 
He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Our purpose is to announce the coming of the king, that his victory is at hand, that salvation is offered to all. That is our purpose. Finally, our new identity means that we have a new hope. No, I'm not referring to the original Star Wars film. I'm referring to the promise that we see in chapter 6 and in verse 1 and 2. Here, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah, and in doing so, he introduces an element of urgency. Urgency along with immense hope. Have a look at verse 2 again. I'll read it out for us. In the time of my favour, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, Paul says, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. As we leave here this evening, this is for now. Not a future time. This is the day of salvation for whoever comes to Jesus. There's both a wonderful sense of excitement here and also a real sense of urgency. It's today. But wonderfully, though, this is the day in which God's favour is upon us. God is with us. His Son saves. His Word speaks. His Spirit empowers. And we simply have the privilege to point others to the God that we have, to all that God has done. We are enabled to evangelise because we have that sure hope that God is with us and that our message of salvation is true. Friends, see yourselves for who you are as new creations with your identity set in Christ. Your purpose to proclaim his love to the world. Your hope that this is the day of salvation. That in Christ his favour is always with you. Know and understand that, and you will recognise that there is no one more enabled to evangelise to your friends, to your family, and to your colleagues than you are. God has enabled you to evangelise, and he has motivated you for mission. But perhaps you're here tonight and you don't feel like you can share the good news of Jesus, because you're not sure that it is good news. You're not sure you have actually put your trust in him as your saviour and king. If that's you, then let me strongly encourage you to hear the urgency of Paul's message here. There is a God who loves to save and welcome sinners. That includes you. Go to Jesus and accept the forgiveness and the new life he offers. But don't leave it too late. Today is the day of salvation. So brothers and sisters, as we remind each other of who we truly are as Christians and look to the motivations that we've seen here tonight, let us go, let us persuade, let us compel that all may know the love of Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, forgive us 
that our focus is so often on ourselves, on our own pride, on our own weakness. Help us to focus on Jesus. Jesus who saves us, who loves us, who motivates us, who enables us. Help us to simply share the good news of who he is, what he has done for us, and of who we now are. Help us to use the time that we have for you and your glory. Amen.